If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 11. We're taking a two-week break from our uh, series through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we'll pick that back up the week after Easter, but for today, we'll be in Mark and chapter 11. Please do have your copy of God's Word open. Uh, I'm going to reference a couple other places that are around Mark, and so it'll be helpful for you to see that there. So Mark 11... And we're going to read chapters or verses 1 through 11. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. I still kind of hear pages flipping, so I will wait a second. All right, Mark 11, starting verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. For if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Picture the scene with me. It's Jerusalem, circa 33 AD. About 150,000 pilgrims have converged onto a city that normally houses 60,000 residents. Now, however, over 200,000 people are gathered to celebrate one of the most important holidays, the Passover. Now, the Passover has a unique place in the minds of these people who are gathering because it reminds them afresh every single year of one of the most important events in their nation's history, a time when God saved their ancestors from occupation, a time God heard their ancestors' cries to have their bonds loosed from the tyranny of the kingdom of Egypt. Now, this reminder gives them hope because they wonder if perhaps soon God will save them from the forces that currently occupy them and subjugate them at that time, the Roman Empire. Well, perhaps they begin to wonder and ask, is it finally time for the long-awaited Messiah to come and physically remove this Roman government and set up a kingdom that would rule the world and return Israel to prominence that exceeds even David's rule? But they also talk amongst themselves in hushed voices, wondering if perhaps they should take matters into their own hands. Should they rise up against these unjust occupying forces? Is revolution in order? But Rome is not unaware of the whispers of revolution, so they decide they must show force. Amid all the hustle and bustle and talks of revolt, a Roman procession marches into the east side of Jerusalem. The Roman procession is led by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. He's determined that there will be no revolt under his watch. 
He leads this procession, that is public show of force, that was a visible representation of the powers of Rome. I think you could picture it. Cavalry on majestic horses, 6,000 foot soldiers armed to the teeth, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, and the sun glinting on the metal and gold. You can actually hear them before you see them. Marching feet, creaking leather, the sound of horses galloping on the stone street, and the loud beating of war drums. They don't only represent the political powers of Rome, but Rome's theology as well. They are not only strong politically, but they represent a pantheon of mighty gods who birthed out the greatest military power the world has ever seen. And the people they look on, and they're curious, some are in awe, but most are resentful. They hate Rome. But there's really nothing they could do but be their loyal subjects. But what if God did something? But now, this wasn't the only royal procession taking place that day. If we could, you know, kind of do a movie, zoom out from the east side of Jerusalem and move over to the west side and zoom back in, there's another kingdom there being represented. Now, this procession looks very different. In fact, besides the fact that it was also a procession, it looked nothing like what was happening on the east side. Instead of a Roman governor clad in armor, a homeless Jewish rabbi from a notoriously unsavory backwater town. Instead of a majestic horse with a beautiful saddle, a borrowed donkey that's never been ridden, covered in clothes, also borrowed. Instead of armor and highly trained soldiers flanking him, he had fishermen, tax collectors, religious zealots, peasants. Instead of looking on in awe or resentment, the people actually yell politically tinged words calling for him to save them, calling him to the, the descendant of Israel's greatest king and even talking of a kingdom. What we have here is a confrontation between two different kingdoms. One is the kingdom of the world and the other is a kingdom unlike any kingdom the world has ever or will ever see. In fact, its ruler would even say that it is otherworldly, that it is not of this world. As was evident by the processions, these two kingdoms could not be any more different. One shows strength through weapons and military might, the other through weakness and humility. One advocates for the strong and the competent, the other for the poor and the needy. One prizes honor and social ladder climbing, the other for being a servant and last of all. Now, there are similarities, though. Both demand allegiance to them alone, and both confront us. But of the two, it turns out that the kingdom represented by a man on a donkey is what confronts us most of all and demands a decision. Now, you look at this scene that we read, and perhaps with a sort of familiarity, right, on account of how many times have you heard this story? Over and over again, every year, we might not realize the sort of claim that, of authority that Jesus is making here. We might not think that he's exposing the nature of the kingdom by simply riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, or that he's juxtaposing his kingdom with Rome. But like everything with Jesus, every move is purposeful and packed with significance. Jesus has intentionally orchestrated this counter-procession to show that he is the true king and that he is the Messiah, but also that he's not at all what people expect. There are many things that are significant about this royal procession, not a least of which is that until now, Jesus has not made any sort of grand public spectacle, has he? 
In fact, he's always done the opposite by moving away from crowds, telling people to be quiet about his identity. But now he brazenly rides to Jerusalem among a shouting throng of onlookers. This is what I think of, and you thought of it too because you're big Lord of the Ring fans. Aragorn <laughs> was the rightful king to Gondor, but all throughout the books, he was just this ranger who were these sort of vagabonds who worked in secret. And Aragorn has like this shaggy looking and unassuming man who, who kept secret that he was the rightful heir to the throne of Gondor, who came from this royal line that was full of failed rulers. Does that sound familiar at all? But when the right time came, Aragorn no longer hid his identity and he took his place as king. And Jesus was like that. For most of his ministry, he skirted acclaim, but now he makes a demonstration as a political messiah, but not in the way many think. So he, here he forces a decision, both then as now. He's asking us to make a choice, and he's confronting us with, not with, those, not with who we wished he'd be, but who he really is, and we must take him on his terms or not at all. The question for Palm Sunday, the question that Palm Sunday asks is, will you submit to the upside-down kingdom represented by the king on the donkey? Or will you follow the course of the world reflected by the Roman procession? If we choose to follow the course of the world with its power structures and focus on self-glorification, that we can call our own shots and we can make our way to the top, perhaps. We may gain the whole world, but we might what? Lose our souls. In this scene itself, and the one preceded, that preceded it, we must notice that there is a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom that Christ brings. Now, this is why I said I wanted you to have your copy of God's Word open. This misunderstanding is shown in two places. First, by the disciples in the text preceding this one in chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. That's the first place that this misunderstanding is shown. And then by the crowds who shout as Jesus rides towards Jerusalem on the donkey. Now, we mentioned this scene last week from chapter 10, but let's revisit it. It's important. Jesus and the disciples are walking, right, on the way, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, you can see that in chapter 10, they go up to him and they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, right? And we said, we noted last week how this is much like when a child comes up to you, as this happened to you, and just says, hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, grandma, hey, grandpa, just say yes. It doesn't matter what I want, all right? Just tell me that I can have it or I can do it, and then once I have confirmation, then I'll clue you in on what you just agreed to. But Jesus asked them, and this is the key question I want you to notice, okay? Underline it if you must or write it down. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Their request is to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he comes into his glory. That's what they say. Jesus, of course, he tells them, I can't, you can't hold these positions, nor do you know what you're asking for, nor are they currently able to drink the cup and be baptized in the way that Jesus must endure the cross, as we looked at last week. The posture of James and John is wrong from jump. The posture towards Jesus is as if Jesus were some kind of genie in a bottle, Right? Cosmic genie in a bottle, simply there to grant them their wishes and their desires of their heart, whatever it might be. What do they want? They want to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in his glory, but they misunderstand a lot of things. 
They misunderstand what Jesus' glory is. And they wish for exaltation of themselves in the same way that the world gets it. They see glory, yes, as prestige, as sitting in a high position, as being served rather than serving. But what is Jesus' glory? Now, I want you to see the paradox of the gospel. They see Jesus' glory as simply sitting on the thrones, either on earth or in the heavenly places, and ruling. That's how they see it, of being over people and property. But I want you to think again, and you can look at your text and see how Jesus responds. He mentions the cup that he must drink and the baptize with which he must be baptized. And we saw this is talking about God's wrath that he must endure for the redemption of the world. Now, here's the key. Jesus' glory is first on the cross. That Jesus defines glory different than they do. They want glory in the way we think of glory. Power, status, wealth, prestige, recognition, acclaim. But for Jesus... You see, for them to be on the right and left hand in his glory would mean to be hanging on either side of them as he hangs from the execution stake. Those spots are reserved, though, aren't they, for criminals that will be crucified next to Jesus. If James and John knew that, I bet they would not be asking to sit on his right and left hand, would they? But we have to give them props, right? Because it's good that they recognize that he will rule, right? That's good, and he will reign, even as they misunderstand what this looks like. The thing is, they don't realize that the road to sitting on the throne leads directly to and through a cross. Jesus' exaltation comes at a price, namely the cost of suffering and rejection and pain and ultimately his life. You see how different Jesus' kingdom is? The kingdoms of the world, whether politically or in private life, tell us that the way to exaltation is through either brute force or ambition. How did Rome get the glory? How did it achieve its so-called Roman peace, its Pax Romana, through military victories, through taking land and treasure by force, through simply being better and stronger and mightier than their enemies? How are we to make our way into society? How can we be seen as something by our neighbors and peers and coworkers? Well, through simply striving, through hard work and determination. Isn't this true? Through the American dream, through being better than those who are running for the same goals, through having a bigger this or a nicer that. Then people will see that I'm great. Then people will see that I matter. Then people will be impressed by my work ethic and intellect. Then I will get the glory. We're even told in some Christian circles that this is really all Jesus wants for you too. Right? He just wants to make you a better version of yourself. He just wants to be the cheerleader for your goals and ambition. He wants you to be great in the world too. But what does Jesus say? He says that greatness is in smallness. Isn't that what he says? Glory is found in sacrificial death. That there is no exaltation without a cross. He's not coming and riding on a war horse, is he? He's on a donkey. A donkey. The donkeys were, in fact, seen as royal animals. They were. Kings would ride on donkeys that they alone sat. That's why it says that Jesus arranged for one that never was sat on. But even though a donkey is royal, 
It's also common, isn't it? There's nothing impressive about a donkey. It's a beast of burden, not regality. It's not for show, it's for work. There's a reason that you zoom over to the east and Pilate is on a majestic horse. That's the power of Rome. It wins by domination. You'll be part of Rome one way or another. Submit or be conquered. But then the one who holds all things in his hand rides into town and he's on a donkey that he borrowed. And his saddle is what? Clothes that he borrowed. Then he gets into town and he looks around and leaves. That's the king of glory? Yes. And it's meant to be surprising. The sons of Zebedee want glory, but they don't want the cross, do they? They're driven by, they're motivated by ambition, not their loyalty to Christ. They know that Jesus is on his way to imminent death. He, he told them, this is kind of the madness of it, isn't it? If you just look at your copy of God's Word in chapter 10, before they, right before they make this goofy request, Jesus says that he must go and die. But instead of allowing Jesus to focus on his impending suffering, they bother him with their own status in the kingdom. James and John want glory and honor and prestige. And while they believe Jesus to be king, they reflect the ethics of that Roman procession more than Jesus is. As David Garland says, they hope to replace the self-serving oppressive power structure of Rome with their own self-serving oppressive power structure. See, they don't want Jesus for just Jesus. They want Jesus' Jesus' stuff. They want what Jesus can offer in terms of how he can benefit them. Their greatest desire is glory. But they define glory differently than Jesus does, don't they? They desire the wrong things. Their desire should be for Jesus, whatever that costs, not for their own exaltation. Now, every time, in case you didn't think I was nerd enough, I read this story, I can't help but think about a scene from Harry Potter, okay? (laughs) From the first book and movie. You probably heard me reference this before. There's a scene in which the main character, Harry, finds a mirror in an empty room. Do you guys remember this scene? Of course, all you Harry Potter fans. And there's a mirror in this empty room, and he looks in it, and he sees his parents for the first time in his life because they were killed when he was a baby. And they're surrounding him, smiling with him, and they have their hands on his shoulder. And so Harry, he runs to go tell his best friend, Ron, about what he saw. And he brings Ron to the mirror, and he has Ron look in the mirror, thinking that Ron will see his parents also. But instead, Ron sees himself as captain of the sports team. And he's holding the championship cup, and he's standing alone. And all of his siblings are in the corner, and they're jealous of him because he's better than they are. Well, Harry doesn't understand about what this mirror is until later when his mentor explains that the mirror is called Erised, which since it's a kid's book, it's not, you know, very deep. It's desire spelled backwards. The mirror shows the deepest desire of the person's heart who's looking into it. Now, if James and John looked into that mirror, what would they see? They'd see themselves like Ron, right? Successful, seated highly and exalted, better than the other disciples, who, if you read the text, are mad that they asked for this, and they're probably mad because they didn't think to ask of it first, right? And see, if we're reading this passage rightly, we have to ask ourselves whether or not we are more like John and James than we care to admit. We have to ask, what are the deepest desires of my heart 
if I looked into a mirror like Eris said, what would I see? Because what Jesus is after is our looking into the mirror and seeing what? Him as the greatest desire of our heart. Not because we want His stuff, but because we just want Him. Do we know less than the sons of Zebedee want glory and power and prestige? Do we know less than they want to be served rather than serve? Do we know less than they want to use Jesus as one who grants our wishes but never asks us to die? Any approach that would seek to obtain power and glory and wealth and prestige and winning at all costs and defining winning the way the world does misses the fundamental distinctive of the kingdom of God. It looks like Rome, not the kingdom of Christ. It also confronts you and I with checking the real motives of our heart towards Christ and worship, doesn't it? Do we love Christ for who he is, in his person, or because of what we think we could get out of him? Do we love and serve him on his terms or only on ours? Do we want him for him? Do we want Jesus for his person or do we want him to simply be a vehicle to fulfill our wildest dreams? Tim Keller put it like this. He said, if I love God because he's given me things, I'm not loving him for who he is in himself. I'm not loving him because he's beautiful. I'm loving him because he's useful. Jesus tells us explicitly that the approach of James and John is not how the kingdom operates. He says, you're thinking about this all wrong. In fact, you're thinking about things like pagan rulers do. Is that not what he says? Then he gives them a paradoxical combo in verse 44 of chapter 10, doesn't he? You want to be first? Be a slave. You know, think about that. <laughs> you want to be first of all? Be like those at the very bottom rung of society. You couldn't get lower. You know, we miss the force here, don't we? Because we don't have slaves like they did. But this combination of the word first with the word slave would have startled the disciples and the first readers of Mark's gospel. To serve is one thing, right? But to be slave is another. First century people would have never conceived of their rulers in such lowly terms. And yet, those are Jesus' terms, aren't they? There's no room to haggle. These are it. You want to be first, be a slave. You want to be great, be last. You want to win, then lose. And if we aren't willing to give up ourselves for the cause of the kingdom, if we aren't willing to be slaves and servants, then we're saying we're too good for it. Worse yet, we're saying we are to be in a higher position and deserve more than the king of the universe, who, according to verse 45 himself, didn't come to be served but to serve. And what did that look like? It looked like being a ransom of dying in the stead of who? His enemies. You guys see the radical nature of the kingdom here? Quoting Garland again, he said, while Jesus is talking about all that he is about to give, the disciples come up with a shopping list of all they want to get. The absurdity of this scene brings the judgment of the cross on our selfish ambitions and our maneuvering for position and power. Here's the confrontational nature of the Palm Sunday coupled with the disciples' request. If we want Jesus and, you see, if we want Jesus and power, Jesus and prestige, Jesus and first place, then we don't want Jesus. We're still, we aren't motivated by Jesus. And we aren't truly grasping what the kingdom looks like. 
But Jesus sees through the disciples and our wrong motivations because if we want Jesus just for his stuff, then we really don't want him. The crowds too, don't they? They have a wrong view of Jesus. They see Jesus coming back to chapter 11. They go to him. They spread their cloaks on the ground. They immediately remember their Bibles. When the prophet Zechariah said that the king would come riding on a donkey, they remembered Psalm 118 and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What is, what is it that they wanted? This seems, doesn't this seem harmless enough, this scene? Only if we miss the political overtones in their cries. See, what the people want is not a humble Messiah who will allow himself to be executed by the oppressing power. They want a Messiah who will ride into the city and vanquish all those troops that we saw ride into the east to kill their oppressors and restore Israel to earthly prominence. They're there for Passover, remember? So in their minds, they recall when God saved their ancestors from a tyrant in Egypt. They're ready for God to do it again, but through the promised Messiah. Could it be that this man from Nazareth is the one we've been waiting for? So they cry out, save us. And they speak of the kingdom of David. All these are political weighty words. You can imagine if Rome heard people saying there was someone that wasn't Caesar being hailed as king. Imagine if they heard that there was a rival king in another kingdom. Well, it doesn't matter to these people because if this man is the Messiah, he'll make quick work of Rome anyway, won't he? Garland explains it well. He said the crowd is mistaken in their acclaim. They treat Jesus' approach as a triumphal entry and shout nationalist slogans about the restoration of the power and glory of the Davidic kingdom. They're right that Jesus comes as king, but they expect a typical monarch who will establish a temporal empire. Their mistaken presumption that he is entering Jerusalem to purge the nation of foreign domination and to resuscitate the ancient glories of Israel leads to premature festivity. But could you blame them for their misunderstanding? Even the disciples misunderstood the nature of the resurrection. When right, if you go to Acts 1, right before Jesus' ascension, they ask, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? That's not why Jesus came. Pre-existent creator God did not come to take on flesh in order to fulfill the political aspirations of people, whether in first century Palestine or 21st century America. Shouldn't we take, take this lesson to heart in our age of political idolatry? Can you escape politics in 2023? Don't we need a reminder that Jesus will not be the mascot for any man-made political party or agenda? Don't we need to remember that the kingdom that this king brings is one that will include people from every people and nation and tribe and tongue? I can't say it better than our friend Alistair Begg. He said, unless we keep the gospel at the center of our thinking, our learning, and our living, we may inadvertently, unwittingly seek to create a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus of our own political expectations, a Jesus of our own political stripe. Would it really be wrong, he says, for me to say, I'm going to say it anyway, that there is a broad, a spirit in evangelical America which ebbs and flows, but flows more than it ebbs. And the question of Acts 1-6 is asked again and again by the American Christian. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of America? Are you finally going to make this place the way we want it? The way it was designed to be? Surely that's why you've come. No, 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 he says. Then he says this. The only antidote 
that preoccupation is an understanding of, a living of, and a proclaiming of the gospel, because it is the gospel that may be proclaimed to every political, economic nation in a society. But as soon as our understanding of Messiahship of Jesus is allied to a political expectation or a political persuasion, we have now left the gospel behind, and we have now squeezed a new kingdom out, and we have not advanced any further than the passionate, expectant, confused pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem. People want to absorb Jesus into their political agenda. It's about time that Rome be pushed out of their land once and for all. And this man riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 seems to be just the Messiah they were looking for. But Jesus wasn't, won't be co-opted for anyone's agenda, will he? Just because he's riding a donkey and is meek and gentle and lowly doesn't mean he isn't the king. And if he's the king, he sets the agenda. Is that true? He sets the agenda for us, not the other way around. The question isn't, you see, this is kind of how we get. What do we prioritize, and how can we fit Jesus into that? The question is, if we are to be his disciples, what does Jesus prioritize, and how do I mold my life to fit his agenda? You guys know the play by Shakespeare called Julius Caesar, right? If you know anything about it, you know that line, et tu brute, right? Which, uh, you know, Caesar didn't actually say that, but it's from the play. Well, Jeffrey Dottie wrote about that play, and he said that Caesar, what Caesar did was he subjected himself to the will of the people. That's what he did. He said, by giving the people the power to crown him, kill him, or just cheer him, Caesar figures himself as the embodiment and object of their collective will. That may be true for how Julius Caesar was, but it isn't true of Jesus the Christ. And we have to get that if we're going to receive him and understand the gospel correctly. His entry into Jerusalem was confrontational to the people, and it should be for us too. We shouldn't look at this scene on Palm Sunday and let it invoke just warm, sentimental feelings of the time when we let our children run throughout the church aisles waving papers that looked like palm branches and just chuckle and say, how cute. This procession featuring a king on an unexpected steed is riding directly to us and calling for a choice. And so we must take him as he is in himself and not attempt to refashion him into something that better fits our expectations of what a savior and king should be. And see, and here's the other problem with the crowds that we have to see because it's true of us too. They misidentify who the enemy is and they misidentify what they need to be saved from. They think their biggest enemy is who? It's Rome, the oppressive power. They think what they need to be saved from is the military domination that's making it hard to live as a free people in their homeland. And that's kind of the irony of what they say, isn't it? Everything they shout when Jesus passes by is right, isn't it? He is king. He does come from the line of David. He will sit on the throne of the kingdom forever and ever. And in fact, he will destroy his enemies as a conquering king. But the clash that Jesus is headed towards in this holy week is against sin and death. It's against Satan and hell. It's against the principalities and the powers of the air. It's against the forces that stand behind wicked regimes like Rome. Don't you see? 
The people did need to be saved. They did need rescue. They did need a king. But what they needed to be saved from was their own hearts, from their own sins, from their own rebellion. They need a Messiah, and they need a Messiah who will conquer, but they need a Messiah who will conquer sin and death. They need a king who will punch Satan in the mouth, not Caesar. They must realize that the salvation they need most is from that which separates them from their creator. You guys remember C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce? It's a theological fantasy. It pictures a bus traveling from Greytown to the Green Plain is what these places are called. The citizens of Greytown, they're like this ghostly, immaterial, sad people. And citizens of the Green Plain, they're solid, they're happy, they're full. Well, in the book, the reader is introduced to many of the ghostly people and they're interviewed by people from the, the, the solid people who wish to convince them to give up their damning ways and embrace the gift of life and therefore become whole and solid like them. Well, the ghosts have all kinds of reasons and excuses why they remain in their sad state. What it really comes down to is they're afraid of the light and they love the dark. They all have reasons, they all have excuses for why they will not receive the gift of life, but at the end of the day, the real enemy is themselves. They refuse to acknowledge their sin, they have justification for all their deeds, but at the end of it all, they're all their own worst enemies. They just refuse to see it. Their pride gets in the way, so they stay unsolid ghosts, and they never become whole. The people here in Mark 11 mean well, but they misidentify what salvation they really need. Don't get me wrong, Rome was a very real problem, but it wasn't their greatest problem of all. As we saw Jesus say in Luke 11, people, whether Rome or otherwise, can't send you to hell. But your sins can. And they will if salvation isn't provided. But as we know, it's always easier to identify enemies externally, isn't it? Than to humble ourselves and identify the enemy within. Isn't that true? But for us to receive salvation, we have to see that we are our own worst enemies. It's our own sinful hearts that we need to be saved from. Or let's put it in more contemporary ways. Instead of C.S. Lewis, there's a newish song by Taylor Swift, right? And I know it because I have daughters, not because I listen to it myself, okay? Uh, but <laughs> she says, she's the problem. You remember that song? And if you know Taylor Swift, you're like, it's about time. You realize that you're the problem, right? And she says, uh, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. That's, that's pretty profound, isn't it? What they need and what we need is to see that we need a Savior. We're the problem. We need to be rescued. We have an enemy that needs vanquished, but it isn't out there across the aisle. The thing we need to be saved from is our sin. The rescue we need is from eternal death. Don't you guys see? This is why Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He crashes with religious authorities. It's because he must die. And he must die on Friday, and he must absorb the wrath of God to rescue us from that sin, death, and the devil, to loose our bonds so we could follow him truly and be subjects of a better kingdom that will outlast every kingdom, including an American one. We know the story, don't we? We know in a few days that Jesus will be rejected by the crowds. 
We know they'll pick a terrorist over him. We know that instead of shouting Hosanna, they'll shout crucify him. Now, we don't know if it's the same crowd on Friday that we see here on Palm Sunday. There's just, we just don't, can't know if it's the same people. What we do know is that the same spirit that would receive him if he was the Messiah they wanted will reject him for being the Messiah they don't. They reject him because they don't have a category for a Messiah that would allow himself to be executed by the state because it was the state that he was supposed to overthrow. He can't be the Messiah if he dies by their hands. Who ever heard of a Messiah that allowed himself to be killed? But no other Messiah will do. And that's why his kingdom is so different and why he is such a different kind of king. He wins by his own death. He conquers by dying. He wins by losing. He shows power by his weakness. His greatness comes from service. He, he fill, fills by emptying himself. He sees equality with God, not as a thing to use for his own advantage, but he emptied himself. Well, if that's the case, how can we do anything but emulate him? Do you remember when Jesus asked who the disciples said he was? Do you guys remember that famous scene? Peter answered correctly. He said he was the Christ, Son of God. And Jesus followed that by saying, I must suffer and die. And Peter said, may it never be. What did Jesus call him? He called him Satan. Why? Because glory only comes through the way that leads to and through a cross. And any glory, listen to me, that would bypass a cross, says Jesus, is of the devil. The crowds don't want that. Give us a strong man. Give us a strong man that will help us bypass suffering and exalt us now. Give us power in the state so that we may have our way. Give us thrones and crowns and accolades and all the good stuff the world has to offer. And you know what? You can have all that. But you have to do it without Christ. And thus without salvation, because Jesus says the only way to true glory is through suffering, servitude, weakness, meekness, losing, emptying self, and properly identifying that the source of all our emptiness and all of our misery lies within our chest cavities and not somewhere out there. That's hard to admit. That's why it's good. And that's why it's another worldly kingdom. And that's why it's the only path to true rescue. But see, I want you to see this. Mark does show us that someone gets it right. There's a scene right after James and John's request and immediately before the triumphal procession. Look in your word and see it. They're in Jericho. And they're walking out. And there's a great crowd. And there's a blind beggar. He's sitting on the side of the road. He calls after Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What does the disciples do? Be quiet, right? Don't, don't bother the teacher. After all, we don't, want, we don't want to bother him with the likes of this poor, blind beggar, right? But Bartimaeus, who's this blind man's name, he would not be silenced, would he? He cries again, son of David, have mercy on me. To which Jesus, he stops, and he tells the disciples, bring that man to me. And the man throws off his cloak, and he springs up, and he runs to Jesus. Now check this out. Remember in 1036, Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee, what do you want me to do for you? Look at 10.51. Same thing. Same phrase. Same question. What do you want me to do to Bartimaeus? Will Bartimaeus ask for glory too? Will he ask for exaltation? Will he ask for a throne next to Jesus in his glory? What does he say? He simply says, I just want to see. 
You know what he says? I just want to see. Just eyesight. Just something you and I take for granted every day. How does Jesus respond to this? It's very different than the sons of Zebedee's request, isn't it? He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Right Beautiful picture of the kindness of Jesus. A beautiful picture of the fact that those who no one in society makes time for, those overlooked and passed over, those told they're strange and are ignored, Jesus says, I have time for you. What do you want me to do? Isn't that a beautiful picture? I wonder, how, how would you answer the question? What, what would you say? If Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? If I'm being honest, my answer would sound a lot like James and John most of the time. If I'm being honest, my answer would be like the crowds on Palm Sunday most of the time. If I'm being honest, my answer doesn't sound often enough like our friend Bartimaeus. Sometimes what I think I need most is not what I need most. Or at all. Sometimes I misidentify the enemy. Sometimes I want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he comes into his glory, and I misidentify his glory. And I bet you do too. How would you answer his question? See, what we must realize is that what we need most is almost never what we think it is. We need most is not a better or different job. We need most is not a bigger house, a better marriage, a better family, or more money. What we need most is not more stuff to fill our storehouses with or a bigger retirement to ensure a future that we might not live long enough to see is comfortable and relaxing. We need most is a king who will have mercy on us. And then to respond like Bartimaeus did. Do you see what he did? Jesus calls after him, and he throws off the only possession he has in the whole world, his cloak. He needed that thing. It kept him warm at night. It would serve as a collection basket for the alms. People would toss his way, but he cast it off, and he runs to Jesus. Bartimaeus would have no encumbrance in his following of Christ. He threw off that which might hinder him from going after Christ, and so must we. If something is, is hindering you today from following Christ, either for the first time or for real faithfulness and obedience, you must cast it off. Whatever it is, throw it off your shoulders, run to Christ. It's the only way to follow him. But see what happens when Jesus heals him? This is so cool. Jesus says, go your way. Do you see it? But what does Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus on the way. You know, all throughout Mark, the phrase the way has been shorthand for a road that leads to a cross. Because to follow him, one must be willing to follow him even if it means suffering. Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? They said, exalt us, give us glory. Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He said, have mercy on me, give me sight. Have mercy on me. That's all that's required in coming to this king. Humbling oneself, repenting, and saying, have mercy on me, and he will. Now think again about Jesus riding on a donkey. If he had ridden on a war horse, it would have been a splendid affair indeed, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't be good news to me. I couldn't approach him if that was the case. 
but that he was on a donkey? Now I could go to him because he's gentle and lonely. Would, gentle and lowly. Would he conquer me? Yes, but not by force. You know, this isn't the last time someone is going to ask, what do you want me to do in Mark's gospel? You know, at that point, when it happens again, when this question is given again, it will be Pilate who will ask the crowd, to which the crowd will say, crucify him. Pilate asks, why? What evil has he done? And they just say, crucify him. Of course, Jesus had done no evil. He was and is perfect, but he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is to be led to a slaughter. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. They said, crucify him, not knowing that this was his plan all along to be Hosanna embodied. He must give himself to a gruesome death in order that he might bear their griefs and carry their sorrows. Yet they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Why? Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us to our own way. We fancied ourselves proper kings of our lives, following the course of the fallen world, so the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of Father, the Father that he be crushed. And it was for the joy set before him that he was willing to be crushed. Why? Because you need to be saved. You need a proper king so that you could cast off what hinders you, so that you could live for a better kingdom that makes no sense to a mind entrapped by this world, so that when you are ignored and afraid and alone and anxious and unsure and nervous, you could cry out to him and he will not only hear you, but he will ask you, what do you want me to do? And you can say, have mercy on me. And he will, every time. In light of all this, let us not be counted among those who operate according to the kingdoms and ethics and priorities of this world, because then we'd be standing with those who shout, crucify him. Let us not be counted as those who try to shape Jesus to fit our own whims and whimsies and dreams and desires and political aspirations, because then we'd be standing with the crowd shouting, crucify him. On a spring day, in A.D. 33, the king of the universe who had taken on flesh and lived a perfect life rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He demonstrated that his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world like the one that rode on the opposite side of the city with his military power and might. Most importantly, this king rode into Jerusalem knowing it meant that in just a few days he would be betrayed and abandoned and denied and arrested, and flogged, and crucified, and baptized into the wrath of God for the wicked. He knew, and yet he did it, and he did it for you. And he did it because his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom, because it is for poor beggars, and children, and the weak, and the needy. His kingdom is for those who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
His kingdom is for servants and slaves and people who don't need to be first, but delight in being last because their hearts have been transformed. And he confronts us with this demonstration and he begs the question, will you choose the posture of the kingdom of man or the self-giving posture of the kingdom of God? Will you go your way, he asks, or will you follow me on the way? He asks, will you give me your allegiance? Will you give me your whole life? Not just the pieces, not just the leftovers, not just when you feel like it, not when you just need me to provide you with something, but your whole life, your whole allegiance, all that you are. Will you see me for who I really am and not just as you wished me to be? For I am greater than you can ever imagine. Will you cast off all and follow me? He's asking you that today because it's the only way to life. This is what he's calling for you this morning. What will you choose? Bartimaeus enthusiastically and with joy threw off all that hindered him and happily ran to follow Jesus on the way. Let us do the same.